0: Hi everyone and welcome to Magic Numbers and this is episode 24. The sagas begin and I'm going to talk about the first uh, Kamehameha Neon Dynasty data. Uh, I'm going to dedicate probably an unruly amount of time to the ninjutsu effect because there was several questions about how does the ninjutsu impact win rates and why does the ninjutsu impact win rates. So I'm going to explain exactly what's happening there in the data and how you can sort of try to look at um, uh, the 17 lens data and, and, and see how exactly does it impact it. And then uh, I'm going to chat about archetype openness and uh, speculate a bit about where it's going. And we're going to go through all the archetypes and look at interesting commons and uncommons
1: and what is going well in each uh, color combination. Okay. But I'm going to start with a preamble. As always, a quick soapboxy moment uh, where I'm discussing a particular aspect that drew my attention today. Um, so I'm going to talk about sample size and there is this big idea about from, well, lots of people to be fair, that
0: sample size is very important and yes, I do agree. It It is important. Uh, bigger sample sizes make reliability of the data, uh, well, more predictable, um, uh, But the data quality matters more and uh, this is especially interesting and important in the first weeks of the format when people just don't build uh, good decks yet and that can muddle a bit the picture of the format and also um, some cards are open early in the format then they start being picked uh, at the appropriate rate uh, as the format matures. And this is also changing, like the first two weeks of data is not exactly the same as the data from a more, more mature um, format. And I wanted to go into the um, example from a history where uh, that was exactly the case. And in 1936, uh, Literary Digest, uh, an American uh, newspaper or magazine, uh, polled their readers and uh, well a huge amount of population on who is going to become a president. And uh, according to their survey, and their survey was just gigantic. No one ever before and after did the, this kind of polling. They sent the questionnaire to 10 million people and they received roughly 2.2 million replies. And based on that data, they just uh, decided that uh, Roosevelt is going to lose the election by quite a large margin, actually. The history turned out to be completely different. Uh, Roosevelt won the election by quite a large margin by carrying all but two or three states, I think, um, and then became, of course, the longest-serving service- president of the United States. And the issue with that uh, Poll was that uh, they were mocking Gallup, who uh, did well, pretty sizable poll, I think around twenty to fifty thousand. I don't remember exactly, and um, uh, they were mocking him from a small sample size, and that this kind of small sample size does not even compare uh, with uh, with what they did, um, and. Famously, they, they they completely mispredicted it and um, uh, lost the competition with Gallup, although the he used much smaller sample size. And because of that, uh, first of all, the, the magazine just dissolved a couple of years later because, uh, well, it was an embarrassing defeat. But it also changed how we poll things and how we look at the uh, uh, polling data and how we uh, generate the polling data. And <laughs> the thing that, happened in um, in the case of literary digest uh, was that first of all, they sent mostly the surveys to their readers and their readers were not a perfect sample and that distorted uh, the results. And also what uh, people analyzed later, um, it was the case that they sent those 10 million surveys, but people who were more likely to respond to the survey were the ones that felt very strongly against Roosevelt. Uh, which turned out to be Republican voters in that case. And um, because they had this disproportionate response rate, uh, they skewed the results even more uh, than the actual uh, reader selection. And this is something to think about when you look at the limited data. It's even with ginormous sample sizes, if you only base yourself on the day one, day two of the format, you might go to completely wrong conclusions for um, what happens later in the format because the data quality in the first days is just not very high first of all as i said some cards are wide open some color combinations are wide open which changes um, as the um as the format matures and second of all as i also mentioned um Uh, People don't build their decks well, which might especially hurt particular types of cards, the cards that are difficult to build around, the cards that require some knowledge of the format functioning, uh, the cards that need careful planning and playing. So uh, because of that, don't get super focused on sample size. Of course, it's nice to have a big sample size, but think hard about the quality of the data that you're looking at uh, when you try to draw some uh, useful conclusions. Right, talking about that. Data summary for this talk, I got the first glimpse of the data from 17 lands from the first uh, five days or so. Um,
1: so as always, thank you to 17 lands. Why, why does it say land? I have to correct that because I, I, I,
2: I can't, I can't stand that. Yeah,
1: there we go. Um, so, uh, it's based on, uh, 160,000 games. Um, and
0: 26 or so thousand drafts. So but this is a decent sample size. The quality, well that remains to be seen how good is the quality. And in limited data from my experience, uh, there are some things that are tricky to conclude in the first weeks and some things that are actually alright in the first weeks. Most of the time, strength of the cards is generally well estimated. There might be some discrepancies with a particular type of cards. Um, But the decks data, uh, they will change uh, over the first couple of weeks because the tendency is that in the first week, the most open deck is going to be the one with the highest win rate because people just don't know, people don't pick the right cards and because of that, win rates get skewed. Okay. But before I will dive into the actual um, Kamigawa data, I'm going to talk a bit about the Ninja Conundrum and the Ninja conundrum is that Game in hand win rate is the most commonly used uh, stat from the 17 lands. And it is probably the most useful stat as well. I really do use it most of the time when I present data because it just tells you so much. Game in hand win rate is um, when you had the card in your opening hand or you drew it later in the game. And what, are the, uh, what is the win percentage of the games when it happened. But Game and hand win rate has a couple of particular problems in terms of computing and there's been a discussion between Sam Black and uh, Mike Sigrist that I somehow got involved in um, where that topic was raised. We knew that there is an issue with the game win, um, game and hand win rate uh, since Strixhaven uh, where we basically found that um, Ruta had a very weird uh, stats that just didn't make any sense. And based on that, we reanalyzed what was going on in there. And it turns out that um, the game in hand win rate does not cope with a couple of things. One of them is cards with high copy numbers. <coughs> there is a slight um, distortion of the win rate base, uh, in cards that have a high copy numbers. And also cards that return to hand in some way. So it can be that either they bounce themselves back to the hand or that... When they go into the graveyard, you can return them to hand. These type of cards are um, uh, problematic. And why is that? So um, this is all how the data is uh, computed. So uh, the problem with Arena is that Arena will show you which cards were drawn, but it doesn't show you that you know the uh, network disruptor that, um, that the person drew is the same copy that they played on turn one, or is it a different copy? So. Uh, If you have three of them, you don't know exactly which one uh, was being played and which one came back to hand. Now, if you bounce it, it appears in the hand as if it was drawn. And the uh, calculations for the win rate take that into account that it was drawn again. And that leads to a thing like this. If you have one copy of a card and you've drawn it once, it creates one data point for a particular game. So if that game was won, it counts as one win. If game was lost, it counts as one loss. If you have two copies of a card and it was drawn once it creates two data points because we don't know which copy of that card was drawn so basically if you have two copies of a particular card in your deck and you've drawn one copy during the game it generates two data points so if the game was won it makes two wins and if game was lost it creates two losses and it goes on. So if you have two copies, but you drawn them twice, it creates four data points. So you multiply the number of copies by the number of the uh, card drawn. So in the same way, if you have four copies of a card and you drawn twice, it generates eight data points and it comes from one game. So this one game generates eight data points. If you want it, um, it counts as eight wins basically for the uh, purpose of calculation of the win rates. So there are two things that really distort it, and first of all, is that cards that return to hand. So some cards and mechanics will enable returning a particular card into hand. Arena doesn't let us distinguish in which copy re- returns, and this inflates the data. Uh, very much like copy number will. So if I have like three network disruptors, and I ninjutsu'd uh, one of them twice, that means I drew it three times, and I drew the second one, that's four times, so that's three times four, that's 12 uh, data points generated for this game for this particular card. And it inflates data by
1: quite a lot if you bounce a card quite frequently. And the problem would not exist if the games
0: when I bounce this network disruptor a lot of times uh, would end up with the same win rate as the games when I don't. But it's not the case in, 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 lot, in case of lot, lots of those cards. It is not the case at all. So here I have the um, win rates for network disruptor based on the number of network disruptors drawn.
1: So if I draw one, the win rate is 56. Well, nothing out of the uh, nothing uh, impressive. Um, uh, if I drew it twice, the win rate goes up to 64
0: percent. If you draw it three times, it's up to 70 percent, and if you draw it four or more. Uh, it goes up to 72%. So, in the games, when I drone it multiple times, I say I drew it four times, I have uh, three copies in my deck, that means uh, 12 uh, data points, I have a much higher chance of winning, which will slightly
1: um, uh, which will slightly um, uh, inflate uh, the win rate. But, you know,
0: fear not. If we know that there's a problem, there are solutions. It's just that those solutions are hard to apply um, on the data tables, because that requires a lot of uh, other computations if you want to do it properly. And um, uh, just there is not enough bandwidth to to deal with that kind of stuff. So there are simple solutions that you can apply on your own. So first of all, it's very, very easy to figure out which cards are particularly um, uh, problematic in terms of their copy numbers in the deck. And, you know, some cards you just want to have multiple copies of. Uh, You can think about Ancestral Anger from Crimson Vow or Shipwreck Sifters from uh, Midnight Hunt. You wanted to have as many copies of this card as possible in your deck because, uh, first of all, they were becoming better in multiple copies. And second of all, um, 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 they boosted themselves in in, in some way.
1: Um, So... In the data tables that you get in the uh, 17 lands, you will get um,
0: numbers of games played and numbers of games that the card was in the opening hand. Now we can safely assume that most decks are um, 40 card de- uh, decks. It actually is 95% of the decks in 17 lands are 40 cards. And then there's like 4% of the 41 per- uh, cards decks and 1% of things that have more than 41 cards. So. For simplicity, we assume that there is a 40 card deck. From there, we can calculate that the number of a card, if you had one copy of it exactly um, in the uh deck, um should be 17% point five percent of the time. Because 7 divided by 40 is well 0.71175. So from these numbers you can easily calculate this number. And if it's not 17.5, it, and if, in fact, if it's quite far from 17.5, it means that this card is played very frequently in multiples. So you more often have um, multiple copies of it in your deck. And in case of some cards, you will just get, you know, around this 17.5%. Um, so I did it for some, some cards in the, uh, in the format just to show you. Uh, so basically, I can divide this 13,400 uh, number of uh, Okiba reckoner rate being in the opening hand. Uh, I can divide it by um, 48,000 of the games played with that card. And I come up with around 28%. 28% is way more than uh, 17.5%. And if you recalculate it, it means that you probably have like an average of 1.6 copies of this per deck if you have at least one of them in the deck. That doesn't take into account the decks with zero copies. And we can look at different cards, you know, Imperial Oath, it's around 1.2 copies per deck. Um, um, Moon Circuit Hacker, 1.5, uh, Virus Beetle, 1.4 copies per deck, and so on and so on. Um, so these are the cards that are particularly abandoned. I, I, I didn't select random cards here. Um, oh yeah, Network Disruptor, 1.54 uh, copies per deck, uh, also quite a lot. I didn't pick random cards. I picked the ones that actually had multiple copies and also had a high game win rate. Um, but there is also the second problem. Like, uh, you already have a lot of Network disruptors, So this is the card that will have 1.54 copies per deck. But Network Disruptor is probably the most likely card to get bounced while you're playing it. And how can we actually calculate uh, how big is the problem of bouncing? Um, so... <clears throat> Apart from the number of games played and games in the opening hand, we have the number of games uh, where the card was drawn. Um, and this also should follow a particular set of rules. The games will vary slightly in their length, maybe some decks will have more card draw or whatever, but in general it should average out um, And um, the number of um, uh, games that the card was drawn should be somewhat related to the number of games played. Um, And of course, the number of uh, uh, times that the card is drawn will also depend on the number that you have in your deck. So, um, what I did in the next analysis is I basically divided the number of of games drawn by the number of games played. Um, And I sort of took all the cards from, um, uh, from the set. And sort of plotted them on this uh, graph. So basically, there is the main trend of the more of the copies of the given card you have in your deck on average, uh, the more likely you will be able to draw it. But there are some cards that completely are out of this um, uh, out of this regression. And because you know it's a it's a simple linear regression, we can we can sort of get a, a formula to calculate. Um, uh, where would you expect uh, a particular card based on this number
1: to be on that on that graph? Oh, thank you for the Matt Moses, by the way. And thank you for the sub to the cubed.
0: Um, so for example, this here point is the one mana two to haste samurai that gets bounced into your hand after it attack uh, at the end of turn and not after it attacks. Um, so you can see that because this card will almost always get bounced to your hand this n- number um, of the times that you draw it is super inflated because it will always bounce back so if you attack with it twice it will be bounced and uh, you will basically count as drawing it uh, three times in, during that game so this card is super inflated by this bounce effect and network disruptor is also very much uh, inflated by, um, um, by that effect but not to the scale that um, um, that the samurai is However, um, the Okiba Reckoner rate—it's uh, more or less where you would expect it to be, uh, based on um, the number of copies in the deck. So you can see that the, the bouncing problem does not apply to the Okiba Reckoner rate, but it does apply to the—oh uh, god, where is my where is my laser pointer? The laser pointer should be laser point. Uh, but Network Disruptor is um, is is bounced by uh, by inflated by this bounce effect. Uh, so based on this equation, I sort of calculated, um, okay, wait, 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 one thing after another. So the distance between this trend line and, uh, and the data point uh, will tell you about the bounce size, effect size. So basically, how frequently is the card bounce and how big a problem is that for a particular card. Um, and then for each card, you can also sort of calculate the <clears throat> win rate based on the number of copies drawn. And you can say what is the impact on um, the win rate of the particular card <clears throat> when you calculate how many times it was drawn.
1: Um, and of course, for some cards, it's going to be positive, for some cards, it will be negative. Obviously, the ones where
0: it's negative, you probably shouldn't play when you bounce it and, and you're actually more likely to lose the game. That's probably not going to be a great card.
1: Um, <clears throat> so.
0: Here we have several cards and they are sorted by the size of the um uh, by the size of the uh how inflated is uh, games drawn to games played ratio compared to where they should be. So for example, uh for example the reinforced ronin um the games drawn to games played is 1, which means that it is on average drawn once per game it's played in every game, in more than every game, you draw one copy of it. Obviously it's not true uh, because we know that there are games where it wasn't drawn, which means that in the games where it is drawn, uh, you draw it several times because it bounces into your hand and because the uh, uh, silly arena doesn't tell you that it was bounced, but uh, just counts it as being drawn uh, and the data has a problem with it. So um, based on how many copies you have on average of that card in the deck, Uh, you would expect this ratio to be 0.34, it is 1.03, so the bounce effect is 0.7, roughly. Um, And it's the biggest one that any card has. And then we can have some other cards that have a quite a large um, effect. Uh, Shigeki Jukai Visionary, that's a rare um, um, that you can bounce to look for lands. That's one of the cards that has the highest uh, bounce ratio because People want to play it, use the ability, draw some lands, and then in the end, channel it um, uh, to tutor for some... uh, uh, Was it tutor or draw? Well, to do something with the cards. Oh no, bring bring, bring stuff back from your graveyard, that's the one. Um, And Network Disruptor, another card that uh, is bounced quite a lot. Uh, But from that, we only know how frequently the card is being bounced into your head and... Uh, we also can see that um, actually Network Disruptor has a quite um, high expected uh, game-drawn to game played, um, um ratio, which is related to the number of copies that it has. Uh, like, for example, Shigeki is usually in one copy per deck and, and the number is much lower. And um, uh, yeah, 1000 Face Shadow, which is also a card that is frequently bounced because it's basically like a Network Disruptor Plus. Um, this one also, like the expected um, game drawn to gameplay is low because you only will get one copy because it's a rare, so you will rarely have multiple copies of it. Uh, and we can also see that um, Okiba Reconer rate, which has high uh, games drawn to games played ratio, um, has a very low bounce effect. So it's rarely bounced. The, mainly, the main reason for it being inflated um, is because you play more than one copy because people that can draft it, will draft it in multiple copies
1: because the card is just amazing, as we will learn uh, a bit later. So there we can quantify the game and
0: hand bias. Uh, so we can actually see how big is the size of that effect on game and hand ratio. And uh, for that, I will introduce the idea of the weighted and unweighted measures. And this is something... Uh, well, we use a lot in in, in science work because uh, weighted measures take into account the frequency of certain factor. Unweighted measure only look at it qualitatively. So in my work, I very often look at the composition of the environment. I have 100 species and I can look at uh, relatedness of two samples by looking at which species are present and absent, and that's the unweighted measure. Uh, And that's sort of lowers the impact of high-frequency species but increases the impact of rare species. So if I want to like look at something that is related to rare species, I will not weight it, I will treat... Okay, this is the most numerous species, I'll still treat it like it's one because it's present, or zero because it's absent. And this species is super rare but it will have the same weight as the, uh, as the super popular species because uh, because I want to look at those rare species, I want to inflate their impact on the community. Or I can use the weight um, uh, measures, and in weight measures, I will, if uh, I have like five thousand um, cases of the most numerous species, uh, and uh, and there is ten thousand um, uh, um, specimens in total that I analyze. I will make the five thousand divided by ten thousand, so half of the data will be weighed uh, towards this uh, species, which will mean that those super rare species are going to have almost no impact on my analysis because I will not put I will put the weight on them, but there will be like two of them divided by ten thousand. That's like one in five thousand, so uh, it will not put much input into my data. So just to give you an example, um, if you would look at the uh, average salary of those five jobs. We have fire, marshal, baker, nurse, chef, and owner of an online bookstore. And we have their annual salaries of uh, 25K, 20K, 23K, 21K, and 78 million K. Uh, um, We can calculate it in several ways. So we we can do unweighted average, and we will just add the 25, 20, 23, 21, and 78 million divided by five, and we come with some kind of astronomic number. Or we can uh, look at it by number of occurrences. So we have 40,000 fire marshals, 35,000 bakers, 120,000 nurses, and 45,000 chefs, and one owner of the bookstore. We will sort of make an average, so we will um, that's around 240,000. So 40,000 divided by 240,000 times this, and 35,000 divided by 240,000 times 20K, and then one divided by 240,000 times 78 million K uh, of the anonymous owner of an online bookstore. Um, and then we come up with a much lower number because we weighed down this one outlier um, uh, um, by, we- by weighing it. Um, so that's exactly what I'm going to do with the data um, from, the, um, from the win rate. Uh, Obviously, we don't have that big disproportions in in, in this data because it's basically a win rate is between 50% and and maybe 70% max. So the disproportions won't be so big as as in this uh, uh, super exaggerated example. But what we can do is we can calculate a sort of unweighted win rate. Uh, because this one is weighted, uh, because we count the each instance of something bouncing into the hand as as a data point, so we inflate it like that. Um, what you can do for that is, first of all, you can calculate how many times did you win while having a copy, and you don't care about how many. Every like, if you drew it seven times or or one time, it, it's the same. Uh, so how many times did you win when you had the card in hand at any stage of the game and we can calculate it from the table that um, that you get in the 17 lands you have the uh, number of games played there we go we have a number of games played we have a win rate of games played and we have the number of games where we didn't draw a card and that's the important part for that and we have the win percentage of the games when you didn't draw it so if you multiply um, the number of games played by the win rate you have the number of total wins Um, and if you multiply the number of games when you didn't draw it by the um win rate of when you didn't draw it you have number of wins when you didn't win which means that what remains if you take away from uh, uh, the number of uh, wins in total the number of wins when the card was not in hand you have the numbers of wins when the card was in hand without this inflation and then you have you can also uh, deduct the number of games when you didn't draw it from uh, the number of games played and divide the wins in hand by the uh, um, games that you had something in hand to get this um, unweighted measure for the win rate. So obviously I did it for the for the cards and these are the top uh, top hits. Uh, so we have the game in hand win rate of Network Disruptor from the data was sixty two percent if i did the unweighted analysis it drops uh, to 59 well 58.7 i guess or 0.6 i could have i could have given you the extra digital points here but you know you get the point so um, the delta between those two measures is around 3.3 percentage points which means uh, that the win rate for the network disruptor is somewhere between those two values when you when you uh, remove that inflation. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's three point three percent, three point four percent lower, um, but it's probably closer to the lower estimate. So it's probably like three uh, percent lower uh, than if we add this uh, artificial inflation. And um, and the, the same cards, the the cards that lose the most um, uh, on this the treatment of the win rate. Our thousand-faced shadow, another card that is uh, bounced quite frequently, that drops by three percentage points. Reinforced Ronin drops by two point six percentage points. Virus beetle drops by two point three percentage points. Gloom shrieker, another card that probably um, is bounced, but in a different way by uh, by the uh, geothermal kami. It also has a much lower uh, win rate um, when you when you apply this normalization. And you do know, other cards that we have, there is Kappa Tech Wrecker, Spirited Companion, Circuit Mender. So these are like all very good targets for ninja suing back in a way. Um, uh, Moon Circuit Hacker, another ninja. High Speed Hover Bike, I guess that people also bounce the back to get this uh, top effect for a racing situation. And Moon Snare Specialist and Shigeki, the... Um, uh, the uh, land drawing creature I mentioned before these all make sense that they are inflated uh, because they are bounced because these are all, um,
1: these are all cards that you would want to uh, return to your hand Okay so that's basically the picture of it so um, yeah just to summarize, yes, there is
0: an effect um, of bouncing cards back to your hand and um, uh, and to some smaller extent. Um, of having multiple copies on the game and hand win rate, as you can see, the most um, the most numerous card in the, uh, all the decks, the Okiba Reckoner rate, is not on that list. So um, bouncing has a has a higher impact on on, on this uh, game and hand win rate than uh, multiple copies of the card have. Um, but you still see some kind of inflation. So when I looked at the Okiba Reckoner rate, it's around one
1: percent uh, extra that it gets from these multiple copies. I, and yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong.
0: Network disruptor is still a great card at 59% win rate is something that you will be very happy with. Um, and as I said, this doesn't mean that this win rate is lower by that much because there are some other effects that come into play. Like you do still do play multiple copies and draw multiple copies. You should probably uh, limit it slightly less because uh, if you draw two copies, you should still treated as two data points not maybe as four data points so part of this inflation uh, is actually needed that's why it's so hard to uh, know to to remove it completely
2: yeah
1: um okay but having said all that we can slowly dive into the kamigawa results so
0: after the first week um i looked at the Um, win rate by color pair and I calculate my win rate by color pair slightly differently than 17 lands does so there is a caveat there. I look at both decks that are two colors and the decks with the light splash. Um, And
1: the picture is relatively clear. I think we have sort of two and a half tiers. and a half tiers the tier of their own is uh, black green
0: and i see in the chat that people were very surprised by the black green i wish i could say i wasn't but i was surprised as well um i assumed that uh, you know black green is going to be what it always been in the last uh, couple of sets boring deck with mediocre results
1: but it turns out
0: no now we're going to look at why is that so in a second, but um, uh, but for now, black green is the thing to do in the format. It, it looks amazing. The 57.8% win rate is just sick. Um, then we have a second tier decks, which are not far, but not close. They are roughly 1.5, one to 1.5 percentage points uh, below uh, the black green. And we're talking about Selesnia, uh, We're talking about Demir. And uh, we're talking about um, um, Raktos and we're talking about Simic. They are between 568 and 56% t- percent win rate, which is relatively close to each other. So these decks all look fine. Um, then we have like sort of in between, between the worst decks and, and, and the best decks, we have the Orzhov, uh which sits at the comfortable 55.3% uh, win rate. And then we have uh, four decks that perform markedly poorer. And that's it uh, Azorius, um, um, Gruul and uh, uh, Boros. Boros being the last, that's something very novel because usually Boros is, is in the top top three uh, archetypes in, in most sets. And this time it's not. Uh, I think the last time that happened was um, Strixhaven when they also tried something different with Boros. Turns out that just do attacking creatures that's boros that's its, <laughs> that's its personality and then it's pretty good having said that um so the the, the, the lower tier decks are between 54 percent and 52.7 percent so not a terrible win rate i mean it's not great but if you there might be some caveats about um uh, why some of those decks uh, are performing poorly so i have to say that um i didn't play a lot I played maybe like seven drafts, but I had three trophies out of it and um, two of them were in the white-red and one was in white-blue. So you can clearly get success with those decks, uh, but maybe it requires, um, uh, in my case, string of luck and and in other cases, uh, careful thinking. And I especially think that the Azorius is a much better deck and it suffers from people misbuilding it atrociously. Uh, and I'm not saying that because I think that people are bad at building Azorius, but I think that the data
1: suggests that people could draft Azorius better. And I'm going to explain it in a second.
0: Um, what the Sphinx revealed is, is saying, 17 lands players must be much better than average otherwise it's hard to explain all combinations to have 52 plus win rate right yes the average win rate of 17 lands user in this format is exactly 56 percent. so uh they are much better than the average that's something that you should keep in mind but it also makes the data slightly better because you already get the data from people that in majority know how to win, uh, which means that uh, the advice from them will be slightly, uh, slightly better. I guess that you're better informed about doing the right things. You you don't get lots of these uh, these decks that are just just well you know sometimes decks are bad and some people are just starting to draft and they will maybe draft worse decks at least uh, while they're learning, and you get this data largely excluded because well 17 lands is unfortunately in some cases in some ways unfortunately used mainly by grinders that are married to playing limited and and, and just spend all their time their free time uh drafting which makes their draft decks ex- better built but it's you know it's it's good for uh learning good habits based on uh looking at the data and especially when you go to the higher echelons of the players you can get even even stronger um about uh, what are the bad and good things in terms of building. And I'm definitely going to go much deeper in the data in the next um, uh, coming weeks. Uh, <clears throat> today, I'm just starting with, you know, like general overview of the drafts and maybe looking a bit about the archetypes. I'm trying to fish out some, I will try to fish out some more impo- impressive stuff um, in the next coming week.
1: All right. So. Last time uh, when we had Crimson Vow, I think I introduced this idea of color pair openness,
0: and now I have to re-explain it because obviously there's always new listeners, there's always uh, new people. So that's, um, yeah, it's only fair that I explained it if, if, if not uh, as deep as the first time, but basically we know um, from the data, the win rates of each card, and we know from the data the average last seen as metric. The average last seen as metric tells you more or less how many copies of the particular card you will see in a draft. Because we know what is the frequency of commons, we know what is the frequency of uncommons, we know what's the frequency of uh, rares, and how many on average you will open in a pod. So for example, in uh, Kamigawa, back of the envelope calculations suggest that you will have run 2.25 of each common per draft put on average. Now, obviously that means that in some drafts you open 6 and in some 0, but um, on average you will have 2.25. Um, so I calculate this color pair openness by looking at each archetype. And in each archetype, I look at every card that has a win rate of over 56%. Because of the average win rate of the 17 lens player in this set is 56. So I just say cards that are over average in each archetype. So I'm looking at the archetype specific data and then because i know the rarities i can and i know their alpha. i can sort of calculate how many cards you will get in each archetype that fulfill this uh, um, criterion of having the win rate of 56% or more and based on that i declare color to be very open or or not particularly open so for example black green our best archetype in the uh, format has you will see on average, per draft, 72 cards uh, for that deck uh, that have a win rate of 56% or more in the archetype. While on the other end of the spectrum, in red-green, you will see only 6.2 cards. So there is a massive difference between how likely you are to uh, draft a a good black-green deck. Basically, if you see 72.2 cards on average that are good in the deck, you can start thinking about hard-forcing it because, um, because you only need 23 of them. So you basically, in each pack that you look through, you will get like three good cards for the deck, which is insane when you think about it. Um, so the colors that are um, most open, as I said, black-green is the most open with 72. Then we have uh, blue-green, which is quite open at 63.5. Uh, So there is a good card selection available for people drafting blue-green. Then there's white-green, 58.7, blue-black, 54, uh, blue-white, 48. And this is an important, we'll we'll, we'll jump into in the next slide. Uh, Ours of, so uh, white-black is 42, um, uh, black-red is 36, blue-red is 21. And then we have two colors that are really, really lagging behind, and white-red and red green with only
1: 6.5 and 6.2. Um, so what the Sphinx revealed, um, says now I understand why I tend to
0: end up with white, green and blue, green, almost always. I never want to be in those colors, but it organically happens from reading signals. Yeah. Those colors, if the colors are open and if you have like maybe a slight preference for them, you will end up in them a lot because you have visualized what you want to do. And you see the cards that you want to see and you just draft them. And, and that makes it uh, quite easy uh, to end up in the deck. Um, so just let's just compare uh, side by side the win rate and the openness and you can see that black green is the most uh, winningest deck and it's also the most open uh, which is sort of linked because of course the, the deck that wins a lot will, will have more cards that have a high win rate in it but, uh, but it's not only like that. For example, um, uh, well white green is the third most open color, second most winning color And uh, blue-green is the fifth archetype, but it's really still closely clustered with all the other ones. And is the second most open one at the same time. However, there's a couple of slightly interesting things. One of them is that blue-white has a low winning rate, but it has high openness of the good cards for that deck. Now, what that makes me think is that people build white-blue badly. And I think that I don't have the data to support it, but my intuition tells me that people try to build it as a vehicle deck, and the vehicle is just not good. But it can be built very well as a controllish kind of uh, maybe tempo controllish or just controlish deck where uh, cards are available because you can get 48 of them. You see 48 of
1: them per draft, which is quite a lot. Um, but people don't pick the right cards. And that's why the win rate is low.
0: Because, you know, if you see 50, 50 cards with win rate 56 plus uh, in this archetype and uh, the average win rate of the archetype is 53, I'm quite convinced that people just didn't figure out good builds yet. And lots uh, of people try to do this, uh, you know, archetype kind of uh, mumbo jumbo when you can just focus on uh, on good value creatures and, uh, and, and, and draft it. So
1: I'm predicting that, blue-white's win rate is going to vastly increase over the duration of the format. Uh, So 72, so uh, Alex is asking, um,
0: what does the 72.2 on the right graph stand for? Uh, It means how many cards with a win rate of 56% or more in the game in hand win rate uh, stat you will see for this color combination um, in a draft. So, uh, obviously, you see multiple cards um, uh, per pack for, uh, uh, for an archetype because, you know, you open a pack, you have, s- well, 15 cards, and if five of them are for the given archetype, and all of them have a win rate of over um, um, 56, then, then you will see five cards in that pack, and then, you know, as the draft progresses, you will see fewer and fewer, but if the color is open, even late, you will see good cards for that deck. Of course... Some of those cards are pretty situational. So you can't just count them like uh, you you can't have like as many copies of it as as possible. Um, And some cards are just staples and you want them every single time. Um, I didn't go into detail, but last time I also did this graph when I showed how many bombs, uh, how many very solid uh, uh, cards and and, and how many like over replacement cards you will see. So maybe I should have done that graph. Strap for um but yeah so from the graph you can clearly see that white red and red green are not open because there are not enough good commons for that deck uh, around and that may change when people start building better and some win rates are going to increase you will see that the openness increases it might also happen that um because the color will become more open the decks will become better and the win rate will uh, uh, get bigger but i have to say I I'm, I had good success with white-red and red-green, I can't even imagine a good deck. Uh, so I have a problem even at conceptual level of um, of building. I mean, unless it's like a green deck with a couple of red
2: cards for splash.
0: Okay. So now we have the, this, this idea of openness. Is there anything interesting here? I think that, yeah... Blue-Red is um, slightly sus in terms of, um, uh, is it a deck? And I think that this deck has a lot of potential but uh, it requires particular conditions to be fulfilled. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen uh, that Blue-Red can become a, a good build around and uh, are there builds that are easily accessible that you can draft that will have higher win rate. I still don't know if that happens. So. I'm a bit on defense whether blue red is a viable deck that, um, that requires very careful building or is just that the bed and unsupported archetype because artifacts are so much worse than the enchantments in this format. I tend to maybe lean towards the latter, but uh, hopefully we'll see in a couple of weeks. So as I said, this is the first five days data. And I think that until end of next week. Treat the data cautiously because the quality of the data is still low because people are still learning how to draft decks, how to build them and how to play them. Um, usually the format stabilizes around week two. So at week two, we can revisit those. Uh, at week three, maybe we can revisit those graphs and we can look at the format that is going to be more or less stable. Um, if you didn't see it, I made a an episode on the format evolution. It's on YouTube, so you can watch it where I'm sort of looking at how does the format change on average. And from the previous uh, sets that um, I looked at, it seems that after two weeks, the format is relatively stable. The uh, ALSAN numbers don't change that much, (coughs) which means that the availability of the cards doesn't change almost till the end of the format. Which on the other hand means that um, new possibilities are open and if you start figuring them out early after those two weeks then you can be in the best position. I think that the period uh, like between the uh, end of week two and, um, and and week three, this is where you can gain the most traction over other players for the rest of the format because that's when the format is more or less stable so you can do predictable things. You don't have those wild shifts in the, in, in the pick orders anymore. Um, and you can you understand the format a bit better if you played it uh, a bit. So you, you might know what is your pet deck and how to draft it and how to get on with it and which cards are super crucial for it to function and whatnot. So um, yeah, I think that the week two to week three
1: are very important if you want to stay at high win rate um, until the end of the format. Oh,
0: so uh, not gruel then die says, I also had success, success with Boris. I wonder if people are playing it wrong in quotation marks since it's not a great aggro deck. It might be, or it might be that people over heavily try to lean on being cute with Samurai, uh, which it probably is not always the case. And I'm pretty sure that the, it would have a higher win rate if people would play more Imperial Oaths. Because <laughs> Imperial Oaths is busted.
2: Uh, But we're going to go through all the um, archetypes
0: in a second. Oh, second has passed. We can go through all the archetypes. Yay. So for each um, archetype, I did two slides. One with commons, one with uncommons. And I put um, the MVP of the format, which is either the best win rate card or the best non-saga win rate card. Because... uh, for every archetype, I also picked the best Saga, and sometimes Sagas were the best card overall, um, sometimes not. So uh, if the Saga was the best card, then MVP is the actually second best card. Doesn't make sense, does it? And then I also picked um, uh, a card that, um, at least from my perspective, looked interesting. It's very subjective. There are some criteria I, I, I selected them on, uh, but I thought, okay, this is a card that maybe was not super intuitive to me, Uh, So and it has a relatively high win rate. So I'm going to share that um, uh, finding with
1: you Okay So we start with blue-white which obviously is a vehicles uh, themed
0: um, archetype so it means Maybe you can play a vehicle, but don't get stuck on the synergies because there aren't any I think it's one of the archetypes that is not supported and WOTC <clears throat> has now the policy of supporting only five archetypes per limited format. So that was one that clearly has a weaker support. Uh, however, it's the color combination. I think it can be still good. And as I said, it's pretty open and there seem to be a lot of good cards in it. So um, the question is how you build it. Uh, the MVP of the archetype, the best common is Imperial Oath with a majestic 63.4% win rate. And that tells us a lot about uh, what you want to do um, uh, in this uh, archetype. You want to get to Imperial Oath, which means you want to control the board until then. You want to uh, make sure that you uh, don't miss your land drops. Um, you want to get some advantage. You want to have some maybe defensive removal is good. Like the uh, deal for to attacking creature might be pretty decent in there. <clears throat> the best saga, modern age 61.5% so bit off Imperial Oath but um, not too far and I'm pretty much impressed with this card uh, um, it works very well for me it did some nice shenanigans you know, if you're feeling cute and you have several modern ages if and, and you happen to have the 2-1 uh, whenever you discard a card you can play it until the end of turn, I think the opening of the 2-1 On turn two and on turn three, modern age, pitch a land, play a land, uh, accrue value is is an excellent um, uh, opening because it changes modern age into basically from draw a card and discard a card, it changes those chapters into draw a card, which is substantially better. And you end up with a decent 2-3 flyer. I'd say there is not much flying in the format. Um, so uh, flyers become slightly more valuable. Um, I did run into big trouble with the Modern Age just attacking me for two every turn and me not being able to deal with it without some kind of hard removal. My pick for commons is Ninja's Kunai because it had a pretty decent win rate and it seems to me that it had pretty an impressive win rate in general, so it seems like it's particularly good in uh, blue-white, so that's worth noting. I think that... Um, you know, especially if you want to do some kind of a white-blue with splashing things, you want to be able to play things like the network terminal, the three mana mana rock that has um, one mana tap an artifact um, mill uh, loot, and I think the ninjas kunai. Uh, you have tap an artifact, so ninjas kunai is the artifact that you want to tap for using it. Uh, especially since Ninja's Kunai does not require tapping itself
1: um, for the use and it can be a removal whenever you need it. Yes, it seems good, but to be fair, uh, so um, uh, Renchank uh, says that it seems good with Tamashi. From my
0: experience uh, of, of trophying with the Tamashi deck, like everything is good with Tamashi. Jesus, that card is just busted. Um, And talking about cards that are good with Tamashi, I skipped to the uncommon part of the uh, Azorius. The MVP is the Circuit Mender. And by the way, I had a Tamashi deck with two Circuit Menders, and that was just busted. It's just like such a good combination that basically stops your opponent from having any hope and attacking. Um, so Circuit Mender is 3-mana 2-3, when it enters the battlefield you gain 2 life, and when it leaves the battlefield, and I would like to put the emphasis on leaves the battlefield, you draw a card, and leaving the battlefield, including ninjutsuing it up. So. And because the opponent doesn't always want you to draw a card, this card can attack and maybe not get blocked, and then your ninja can bounce it, you draw a card anyway, which puts your opponent in such a, uh, such a terrible situation. But it is an MVP, but it's not the highest win rate card uh, from Uncommon's in uh, blue-white. The best one is actually Behold the Unspeakable, the saga that um, uh, gives minus 2, minus minus O to creatures your opponent controls for a turn. Um, no, for two turns, actually. Uh, then it draws you some cards, depending on your hand situation, and in the end turns into a XX Flying Trampler with the X being the number of cards in your hand. That one has 30, uh, 63.3. I'd like to notice that uh, Imperial Oath still has a higher win rate than any uncommon in this, um, uh, in this archetype. So, uh, just shows you how busted um, uh, Oath is. Um, my pick for the card that really surprised me, and I mean like really surprised me in this archetype, was Tawashi Guidebot. Uh, this 4 mana 2 1 that puts a counter on something when it enters the battlefield. And for 4 mana and a tap, you draw a card and it costs 1 less for each modified creature you control. I assume that um, uh, this card is just like this archetype wants to draw cards and uh, accrue this extra value because it's a value deck don't mistake it with the uh, vehicle deck but i'm still quite surprised how high it was it's 60 percent win rate is, is quite impressive for it I, I was i was pretty much surprised
1: But yeah,
0: in general looking at the data, the white-blue seems to be good cards, um, value-quality with maybe some artifact synergies. Um, Some cards that have uh, artifact and enchantment synergies were also okay in it because you get some enchantments in white. So, um, yeah. um, I think that uh, it's definitely got potential to improve by quite a lot in in the later stages of the format. So definitely don't feel like you should avoid it i think that um it's open enough um that once black and green are going to be um more what's the name contested um when black and green become more contested i think that uh, white blue is going to be a very very fine alternative that uh, you might get in Obviously, once people get um, a bit on uh, Imperial Oath, it will
1: become weaker because uh, you won't be able to get any number of the Oaths, which is pretty useful.
2: Okay. Orzo.
0: And guess what? Guess, guess, guess what card is the MVP? It is Imperial Oath, but uh, with 63% win rate, roughly. It's not the best card. The best card is Okiba Reckoner Raid, the uh, Rat Saga. One mana... Drains for two over the first two chapters and then third chapter turns into a two, 2-2 two menace. Um, card is busted. Um, uh, especially in multiples, uh, it works fine. Um, nothing to say here. It's quite obvious that it's good. Imperial oh, still good in that deck. Uh, my pick for an interesting card was the cameo of Terrible Secrets. Um, obviously, this card was supposed to be good in um, uh, white-black. But... Supposed to be good and is actually good is not necessarily synonymous, and um, uh, as we've seen in the previous um, sets, there are some cards that are heavy misses. This one looked pretty much underwhelming to me in the uh, pre format uh, analysis, but it actually looks like the numbers are supporting it. So, um, it got 58.3% per- win rate. Uh, this is a 4 mana 3 4. Um,
1: that uh, if you control an artifact and an enchantment as it enters the battlefield, you draw a card and gain one life. Yeah, I think that um, as um, uh, Dunks uh, mentioned in the chat, this card requires
0: careful deck construction. You want to be really having a balanced number of uh, artifacts and enchantments. But once you do, uh, it it does the job. I'm actually really thinking... uh, is it is it okay Is it okay uh, to play things like um, uh, Ecologist's terrarium and keep it on the battlefield until you really need it, just to have that artifact for sure on the board and, and, and then and then some enchantments to enable it. Um, oh yeah, and uh, Renshang says that Shrine Steward is a great card for that, and it is because uh, it puts artifact on board and it draws you an enchantment. So uh, it fulfills uh, both criteria very easily.
1: Now, when we look at the uh, uncommons, again, MVP, again,
0: Circuit Mender, best uncommon already in two decks in a row. And I think that um, Circuit Mender is generally a very strong card and particularly in um, archetypes that look at the more grindy uh, value oriented uh, kind of, uh, and maybe more defensive um, um, plan. So Circuit Mender, again, MVP, but again, not the best card. The best card is a Saga, and of course, the, it is also the best Saga. And that's the Life of Toshiro Mizawa, 65.1% win rate, which is amazing. Um, Circuit Mender, 63.6. Uh So Life of Toshiro Mizawa, the first two chapters are basically g and if someone doesn't know, you can choose either a creature gets plus two, plus two, or a creature gets minus one, minus one, or you gain two life. Very versatile and can kill quite a lot in this format because um, there is a lot of X1s. Um, and on the back side is just a 2-3 that taps for black mana. Uh, some um, synergies, it can ramp you into the Imperial Oath and it also works well with the um, black Invoke spell because it gives you black mana, so uh, uh, that makes it as playable if you have a Toshiro. Uh, the card I selected, that, uh, that again surprised me, um, Is when we were young and that's instant up to two target creatures each get plus two plus two until end of turn if you control an artifact and enchantment those creatures also gain lifeling until end of turn now this seems like uh, you need to fulfill a a bunch of conditions so I thought uh, this card is gonna be awful although the art is beautiful and I love it and um, no one is going to change my mind on that but it turns out that win rate is 59%, which is really decent. So it seems like black is capable of uh, having two creatures on board and also an artifact and an enchantment um, uh, because that's what you require to accrue the full value of it. And with the full value, that can do a really hefty swing. So uh, <clears throat> maybe maybe uh, in a particular build that is... Um, creature-heavy and, um, and, and, and has a good number of artifacts and enchantments, this card can be pretty powerful. Right, let's move to the white-red. Now, white-red, as I said, very poor numbers, but um, it's one of the allegedly supported archetypes, so let's look at it. Guess which... Um, oh, that's, that's a, that, that, there's a wrong number there, that must be 56.3. Um, MVP is, again, Imperial Oath, as in the other white decks. Um, just to prove the point that uh, people like um, Jason ILTG and NCAA, who was uh, earlier in the chat, were absolutely right to hu- overhype the card before the uh, before the set hit. Uh, Imperial Oath uh, looks like an MVP of white in general on the common level. Uh, <laughs> the interesting part is the best saga. Oh, the Imperial Oath has fifty seven point six percent win rate. Um, The best saga is the Shattered States Era, which is more a testament to how bad the sagas are in the uh, white-red deck than anything else. The win rate is a measly 52.5. It seems that common sagas in white-red just don't don't work. And, uh, yeah, uh, my pick is uh, Spirited Companion, which is uh, the 1-1 Doggo that draws a card. It's an enchantment creature that has 56.3% win rate. As uh, a solid card, I just wanted to give some uh, love to the good boyo because, uh, um, because the good boyo is just so good. In every archetype it was close second or third to Imperial Oath, but every single time it was losing out to it. Um, in terms of the uncommons, uh, the MVP is the Twinshot Sniper, no surprises there, the 4 mana reach, Artifact Creature... Uh, when it ETB steals two damage to any target, or you can channel it to deal
1: two damage to any target, uh, the card is really good. Um, and the best saga with with a really
0: decent fifty seven point five percent win rate is the Fall of Lord Conda, and I didn't see it perform extremely well in any other archetype.
1: Uh, so in white red, it seems to fulfill some kind of a uh, role that is important. Possibly removing a big blocker.
0: Um,
1: And my pick for the card...
0: These are, by the way, top three cards from this um, uh, Uncommons... um, Top three Uncommons from this archetype. Uh, So my my, my pick was Banishing Slash. This card also uh, has good numbers across the board. It's a white-white sorcery, destroy up to one target. Artifact, enchantment, or tapped creature um then if you control an artifact and an enchantment create a 2-2 two, two white samurai creature token with vigilance so if you can get the full value of it perfect if you don't well you still kill
1: something it's like a sorcery speed disenchant with the potential of killing a creature um so yeah uh these are the white red i guess that this archetype requires
0: a lot of thinking and, uh, uh, working through it. I had two trophies with it, but I still don't know how, um, I just played creatures and attacked with them to be fair. That, that was, that was the whole of my plan and, and it somehow worked. I had some, you know, like decent uncommons and, uh, uh bunch of the side pop sign signpost ones and, uh, flyers that could, uh, push through. So that, that was the plan. Okay. Um, White-Green, um, I mean, would you would you, would you you take a guess at what is the best common? Obviously, Imperial Oath at 62.3% win rate. Uh, the best saga was uh, not in top three, but it was maybe like a sixth best green common. That was Tales of Master Sashiro. Uh, first two chapters put a plus one plus one counter on something. And uh, it comes back as a 5-5 five, five Vigi uh, Trumpler. And a Vigi Haste creature. Uh, So like a really solid top end. My pick for the um, uh, card that uh, impresses in this archetype is Season of Renewal. um, Three mana instant. Choose one or both return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand or or end return target enchantment card from your graveyard to your hand. That has a solid 59.7% win rate, which looks good. And, you know, this is like something that the uh, archetype wants to do Enchantments, maybe channel some of the green ones, and, um, um, and then accru- this, this allows you to recoup some value. So, for example, you can use Tanuki to ramp yourself into six mana, then season of renewal it, uh, return back to your hand, and replay it, for example. Uh, in terms of uh, uncommons, it's mono green. Uh, MVP is Blossom Prancer, the five mana 4 4 with reach. And that reach is very secret I'm, I'm i'm so much seeing people attacking into it um and it uh, looks at top five cards in your library you may reveal a creature or an enchantment from among them if you need so and if you don't find anything that you're really uh, um impressed with then you can gain four life. so that's, the card is just like so busted i mean it does so much and the win rate reflects that like 66.5 uh, in white-green, which is 66.5, that's, you know, Koma in Kamigawa, like the best uh, mythic and co- uh, rare. Um, <clears throat> Best saga is Boseju, which is Skyward, another super busted card. Um, First chapter you look for two forests, uh, second chapter you... Well, second chapter doesn't exist, let's be honest. Third chapter you return it as a XX, where X is the number of lands, so Basically, if you look for two forests, it will be a 6-6 six, six with reach. And the third card that I picked, it's uh, also the third best uncommon. Uh, Kappa Tech Wrecker, A card is just insane. Uh, you can lock people with it um, in the, basically, situation when they can't do anything about it. It's a ninjutsu Green 1, uh, and also it costs uh, Green 1. 1-3, one enters the battlefield with a death touch counter, and... Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may remove a death touch counter from it when you do exile target artifact or enchantment that player controls. The card is amazing. Um, and the win rate is 65.7. We said you had 65.9. These are all like super busted, And there's plenty of white green, very high win rate cards. So um, the archetype seems to be super
1: support. Now looking at Ninjutsu decks. Um, so the, white, the, the blue black. Uh, MVP,
0: and I was shocked by that, is Virus Beetle. Uh, Virus Beetle, the humble uh, artifact uh, ravenous rat, has the win rate of 64.7. Like, uh, again, at the level that is uh, usually reserved for uh, top rares in the format. Um, and i was surprised by that i thought it would be uh, the network disruptor but no it's virus beetle and that's even before the correction for the uh, bouncing and multiple copies although virus beetle go- also gets bounced a uh, substantial amount of time best saga Okibo Reconor rate as before 63.4 no, no surprises there the, the saga is busted and the card that i selected that is, uh, has interesting numbers is sutap a three mana instant until end of turn target creature or vehicle becomes an artifact creature with base power and toughness four five. Draw a card, and this has sixty percent.
1: Um, um, this and this has a sixty percent win rate, which is uh, which is great
0: because this again like makes decisions for opponent a nightmare because if you have it. You attack with some cr- small creatures, they don't block it, you can ninjutsu something, they block it, you can suit it up, and uh, you know, in a similar fashion, you can uh, you can play ninjutsu with them, um, you're already dead, when if they, damned if they block, damned if they don't. Uh, so uh,
1: yeah, you can put the opponent in really tough spots there. Um, yeah, and this also can work in defense or whatever. Um, in terms of uncommons, we have uh,
0: uh, two old friends, MVP is a Circuit Mender, but it's not the best card, the best card is a Saga, and that Saga is Life of Toshiro Mizawa. just like before, um, uh, Circuit Mender is still busted, especially with Ninjutsu it gains a lot because um, uh, you can bounce it to your hand to try a card, replay it, gain to life, and just like becomes insane. Um, Life of Toshiro Mizawa, Jita is still good in 2022. Um, and the card that I selected as a uh, my pick was the Long Reach of Night. Um, it's a saga with the first chapter being each opponent sacrifice a creature unless they discard a card. And I know that it's bugged, but hopefully at, uh, they clean the bug today. Um, and it turns into an 0-4 that um, uh, when it attacks, it gains menace and... Uh, its power becomes as much as the number of creature cards in opponent's graveyard, if I remember correctly.
1: I, did not play a, I didn't
0: play a single copy of that card to Jordan, so you have nothing on me. Nothing. Um, but I saw, um, uh, saw of abusing it all the time. No, he wasn't, but uh, he was playing it a lot. The card is still good, and even if they uh, repair the bug, it's going to be pretty, pretty strong. Okay, Um,
1: so that's, um, you know,
0: I mean, blue-black is quite simple. You want to ninja things in. But the important part is that um, you don't see any ninjas in the top cards, which means that ninjas are very much replaceable in what you're playing or, you know, uh, not as important as the things that uh, you return to your hand. Like Virus, Beetle, and Circuit Mender being the top um, non-saga cards uh, is telling you something. And two top cards
1: being Sagas also tells you something about Sagas. Okay. Blue Red. And yeah, it would be hard pushed
0: to uh, think it's Blue Red when you look at this slide, unless uh, you read the uh, title. Uh, MVP is a Moon Circuit hacker. So um, in the Blue Red uh, Artifacts Matter um, archetype, an enchantment creature is the uh, best win rate. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> um, that's a ninja. So, um, unlike a nin- ninja deck uh, in blue red, we actually do see ninjas as the top cards. Uh, it has ninjutsu one whenever it deals damage to a player you may loot, um, unless it entered the battlefield this turn when you just draw a card straight. It's a very fine card with uh, lots of trick potential, win rate of 60.6, so uh, very fine. But it tells you something that Blue Red um, does want to play this sort of like aggro, but with a lot of card advantage uh, uh, strategy. Then you have the Modern Age uh, as the best Saga, but it's got the win rate of 56, which is not impressive. Uh, we already talked about the card, so I won't repeat. Network Disruptor, um, uh, the menace of game in hand win rate uh, statistic. The one mana, one one flying when it enters the battlefield, tap target permanent. Um, it's my pick for the deck because I think it's been close to the number one in multiple archetypes and here it also has good numbers so I just put it as my uh, selection just to showcase that the card is still good. Like from what you see in the comments, it, it the picture of blue red is that the archetype theme is nothing that you should really focus on. Um, if you want to have the best results, focus on tempo type uh, play. You want your one drops, you want your two drops, you want your upgrades, you want your things that tap something when they ETB, even in the late game to remove a blocker. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, flying is uh, obviously important. So um, I think that um, Blue Red can play a fine tempo game. It just requires a bit uh, thinking about how to build it. And I think that the colors are still maybe not open enough to do so. But it might change as, as, as soon as people start drafting, uh, uh, drafting black and green more highly as I expect will happen soon, especially with green. Then we have Twinshot Sniper. Um, we already talked about this card. This is the clear MVP of the uh, archetype uh, 61.6% win rate. Uh, Best Saga is Behold the Unspeakable, we also talked about it, the XX Flying Trampler one um, that draws you cards and stops people from attacking you for a turn. And my pick for a card with a really good win rate is Patchwork Automaton, the 2 mana artifact with Ward 2, and whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one plus one counter on it. It has a 61% win rate and the card looks pretty solid, Uh, the Ward 2 is really good on the early drop creature. And you can grow quite quickly if you play the right version. So maybe Patchwork Automaton will require a bit more of the... um, of the Artifact synergies and you definitely don't want the ninjutsu it um, back to your hand after you put five counters on it, for example. But yeah, the the card seems like... There was a lot of hype about this Dragon Spark Reactor. Do, Do I... do I... do I... remember the name correctly? Uh, the removal that grows with the game when you play uh, Artifacts, but Patchwork uh, Automaton is just like a much better version of it when it, terms go for, um, when it, when it comes to going uh,
1: for the opponent's face. Um, yeah, exactly, Rensheng. The card uh, that was all very much overhyped
0: in the beginning of the format, and uh, uh, it's been all by disappointment. know um, it, it's been only disappointment um, from what I saw on other people's board states. Again, I never drew it or drafted it, so uh, lucky me. Um, but patchwork automaton looks good. So
1: um, if you're looking for something that grows with the game in terms of artifact synergies, I think the automaton is the one that you're looking for.
0: Okay, <clears throat> blue-green, MVP, clear MVP
1: is Fang of Shigeki. A mighty majestic 1-1 death touch that's also an enchantment. Um, yeah, uh, quite a big surprise to me, honestly, because, um, you know,
0: it, it. I thought the card would be slightly better than people say, but I didn't think that much better. It looks amazing in this archetype in terms of the numbers. It might drop over time, but still... It seems that Blue-Green wants to survive so badly that the 1-1 Death-Toucher is just good enough. And with some synergies of uh, recurring it um, or um, um, uh, some ETB effects for enchantments, it can be quite uh, quite solid. Um, I mean, quite solid. 61.6% win rate for a common is insane. Uh, The best saga is Modern Age (coughs) with 60.8. Again, you fix your draws so you will allow yourself to to survive till the late game because you have a bit of more card selection. You can chuck away the cards that will not help you in doing that or in the late game, you can accumulate a couple of lands and and then turn them into real spells, Uh, so it's all fine. And the 2-3 body is actually surprisingly solid. And my pick for uh, for the surprise or interesting card is Harmonious Emergence. We've seen this type of card a bunch of times. It's a 4 mana enchantment for a land. Enchanted creature becomes a 4-5 spirit. With Vigilance and Haste, it's still a land. And normally those cards are mediocre to worse than mediocre. This one looks pretty solid. It has 61% win rate in the blue-green. I think, you know, it turns the corner a bit because it can attack the first and it uh, enters the battlefield it doesn't cost you a land um, because if you don't need a blocker you can just tap the land for mana and if you don't need to tap the land for mana then you have a blocker that's basically it uh, so it doesn't slow you down like most of those cards normally did um, because they require tapping for attacking and also when it's destroyed you don't lose a land which is uh, which is very useful so it's like Super pumped version of the spell, and uh, it it seems to be working at least in the blue green.
1: Yeah, so harmonic and harmonious emerges looks pretty solid, and uh, I would say don't sleep on the card. It looks good. Like the four or five body is just
0: breaking so many things that um, that that probably is uh, yeah, and uh, so. Uh the dunk says that um uh no uh Isaiah um, MTG says that the vigilance is very important. But I think that it's not only the case. The problem with those cards very often was that you kill them and then and then you sort of like long one short and uh, especially in a deck that is very mana hungry. And, and and this um and this card just doesn't have that effect. And this is
1: maybe not as important as vigilance, but this uh is pretty important in my opinion for the playability of the card.
0: Okay, Um, in terms of uncommons, MVP is the Kappa Tech Wrecker again, Uh, so uh, yeah, the card is busted, as I already said, and probably even more so in the blue-green, with a modest win rate of 68.6%, it's just mental. Um, The best saga is Behold the Unspeakable, uh, with 66.4%, which is solid, and you know, the Boseji uh, uh, Saga is just very close to it, they're almost like tied for it. And the card that I selected for this deck as uh, my um, um, surprise include is the Spinning Wheel Kick. Now this card before the set was released was played down by a lot of people, um, um, including myself. But it shows good numbers, at least in this archetype. 60.8% um, win rate is not bad at all, uh, it's over replacement and uh, it maybe is the reason because instant um, removal in this format is not particularly great and a 1-1 death toucher is particularly great. Uh, so uh, this can do a whole lot of uh, mess in the opponent's uh, uh, battlefield. Yeah, <clears throat> so um, what this Sphinx revealed uh, says that um, with the amount of death touch in green, it makes it almost a plague wind and yes It does it does Kappa Tech Wrecker and uh, Fang of Shigeki both of them are pretty
1: solid uh, Not to mention that green has some chunkers that can do it without death touch
2: um, Okay
0: Let's look at the black red so the best common in black red is um, experimental synthesizer uh, I wanted to um, well, the second best because the best one is Okiba Reckoner raid. Um, it seems to me that uh, Black Red is the real artifact deck. <clears throat> and having said that, the two, the two, two of the three commons I uh, uh, I show you here are enchantments. But uh, apart from that, there's a bunch of um, artifacts in the format, and it has ways of generating more artifacts without the cardboard involved. Uh, Experimental Synthesizer is the, uh, obviously as everyone knows, uh, the drifter. So, five mana draw, uh, four mana draw two cards, basically. No, it's uh, one red mana artifact when it enters or leaves battlefield, exile the top card of your library. So, if you play carefully with it, it will become a sort of drifter because you can sacrifice it for three mana and create a 2-2 two, two white Samurai creature with Vigilance. Um, so, uh, If you play it carefully, you play it for one mana with enough mana to play anything that you want. You probably want to be very low to the ground in those decks Um, anyway. So um, if you have three mana free when you play it, you should be fine. Or two mana and a land in hand that you can play. Uh, And uh, in the later game, you can get a samurai or you can sacrifice some other effect and still get the uh, possibility of playing a card from the top.
1: Unless you're my opponents and um, you just sacrifice it for three and hit the land of top at zero lands on board. So, yeah,
0: that can also happen. Um, Okiba Raid, we already talked uh, in detail. Um, The nice part is that there are some rare uh, black uh, vehicles or just generally red rare vehicles are pretty good in this deck. Uh, And with Okiba Reconna Raid, they just become way better. The card I wanted to um, showcase is Clawing Torment. It's an Enchantment Aura, Enchanted Artifact or Creature, as long as Enchanted Permanent is a creature, it gets minus one, minus one and cannot block. Enchanted Permanent has at the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life. Now, this card is good. It's not like busted, but it's good. The 59% win rate uh, is solid. And you can do some really awful things to your opponents if they are not ready to um, uh, sacrifice their creature. Like putting it on, for example, on the 3-3 Defender Reach um, um, green creature is fantastic because it removes something that is particularly good against you because the 3-3 Blocker is is annoying. And also it sort of creates this um, inevitable clock for the opponent because usually the decks that want to play the 3-3 Reach Turtle, they don't have a way of... Killing the three, uh, sacrificing the 3-3 three, three, uh, Reach Turtle so they can use removal on it, I guess. Which is not optimal for them. <clears throat> or maybe destroy the enchantment, which is also not optimal for them. So, um, yeah. Card seems good. Uh, especially that um, your main engine of the deck is only Cult Anvil, which is my pick for the uh, interesting uncommon. That's the only signpost that made the list, which is also something very, very Peculiar the signpost uncommons usually are the best cards um, in their color combination, but not in this set in this set They are deep deep um, And you know, like fifth to seventh uh, best uncommon for the for the um, color combination, which is super weird MVP Twinshot sniper and life of Toshiro Umezawa. We know those two already from uh, any archetype before they are just busted Um, so um, Life of Toshiro Umezawa 63% win rate 2 sniper, 62.7, oh, 63.6, 62.7, they are clearly the best. But Oni Cult Anvil, the uh, sidepost uncommon for black-red, uh, has 61% win rate, which is solid. Notably, it was also good in, um, in blue-red as a splash, uh, but I didn't put splash cards in, in, in the lists so, uh, yeah. Oni <coughs> Cult Anvil... Uh, Whenever one or more artifacts you control leave the battlefield during your turn, important, create a 1 1 colorless construct artifact creature token. This ability triggers only once each turn, and you can sacrifice an artifact and it deals one damage to each opponent. You gain one life. So you can imagine that if you already have this kind of draining engine like Oni Cult Anvil, uh, Chloric Torment just speeds up the clock substantially. Uh, so you can uh, sort of build your own like collection of pestilences, really, or oh, not pestilences, but ill-gotten gains or something like that works pretty well and the deck i think that the deck is really reliant on getting those only cult which i think is why i put it on the uh, on the uh, list
2: here
1: um uh, well let's go to the best deck let's go to the best deck of the format so far and that's black-green.
0: Now, first of all, the best common is Twisted Embrace, the four mana enchantment aura. Uh, when Twisted Embrace enters the battlefield, destroy target creature or planeswalker an opponent controls. As long as an enchantment permanent is a creature, it gets plus one plus one. Now, this is the only archetype with this card as a top common. It's not bad in other ones, but in this one it's particularly good. The reason for that being, of course, um, Geothermal Kami uh, that can bounce it back to your hand and replay it on something else and kill another creature which makes it a fantastic 2 for 1 while you gain life and
1: create a cushion and and, and a sizable blocker. Um, The best uh, saga at common is uh,
0: Okiba the Raid. Who knew? Uh, I think it's still good. And my pick for the card that was uh, looking really good in this uh, archetype was the Fate into Antiquity, uh, 3 mana, Exile Target, Artifact or Enchantment. In the pre-release episode, I was talking about this card has really a lot of targets and it seems that um, win rate seems to confirm that this is a good removal that should be playing at least one copy of uh, uh, based on the numbers that we see here. And yeah, I mean, Geothermal Kami is an honorable mention here. The card also has a pretty decent win rate and does something that is. can turn a mediocre deck into a good deck by bouncing those Twisted Embraces, for example. Best Uncommons, um, MVP, Blossom Prancer, 68.1% win rate. Just the, This is just mental. Best Saga, um, I was actually surprised, but the Long Reach of the Night, the one where you can sacrifice a creature. Um, unless an uh, uh, opponent sacrifices a creature, unless they discard a card, um, and then turns into an 0-4 with some kind of a graveyard synergies. Um, it's really, really, really good numbers. Uh, better than the Poseji, which is actually surprising to me. Uh,
1: and better than Life of Toshiro Omozawa. Oh, did they fix it? Okay, so Isaiah says that they re- re-
0: uh, repaired the bug that uh, it had. I still think that the card is going to be good with, with, with the bug fixed and uh, at least um, at, at least it will be a fair card. Uh, that's great. Now I can start drafting it. Um, and
1: my pick again
0: is Kappa Tech Wrecker because the win rate of 67.5 requires a mention.
1: Okay, okay, that's good. It's fixed then. That's fine. I don't I don't think that uh, it's going to be. Okay, and the last uh, archetype
0: we're going to be talking today is red green. And my message about red green is avoided. Not because you can't get a good red green deck, I think, but I think that the risk of getting a bad red green deck is just too high uh from what I saw in terms of openness and um and the card card quality. And I just think that this archetype is just so half-heartedly supported and uh, that I I would say for now avoid it. Wait for people to build better versions unless you want to experiment, which of course I highly encourage. If you want to experiment building something, then do it. <clears throat> I think that um, you know, the and commons does not post good numbers. Uh, modified creatures don't have enough support. Like, it's hard to get them. Like, it would even be good if you would be able to uh, reliably activate the 2-3, 3-mana 2-3 that enters as a 3-4 when you control a modified creature, but you just don't. There's just not enough 1-mana or 2-mana things that are modified. So, uh, yeah.
1: There you go. I would say avoid it for now, and maybe think about how to make it better. Right. Now my voice is completely gone. Um, I go to the acknowledgement section so as always thanks to the 17lands team who are amazing
0: and support me and support well all of us to be fair um, in terms of uh, getting good data out from for limited needs Uh, so viral misnomer Hululu and Grant Wu are people that are involved in it quite heavily and are also present on Twitter so I recommend you to follow them to see what they have to say about what's cooking in 17lands world Uh, Also, thanks to uh, Fake Jake Brown uh, for helping me with releasing the podcast version of this. And thank you to SSQ and um, Mana Junkie for the theme song, if you're listening to this in the podcast version. And yeah, thanks. This was the first shallow dive into the uh, Kamigawa data, but over the next week, the format is great. So over the next week, I'm definitely going to try to figure out some deeper uh, takes uh, based on the data. We get and maybe talk about signals uh, and how to read them in this particular uh, format and how the drafts go and, and and mulliganing strategies and things like that i'm going to see that but for now thank you
1: very much and uh, thanks for listening